0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four K E Y S that's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I truly do believe that this is both the very best time in the history of the universe. As far as we can tell, at least the history of this world to make something because, um, The tools for creation have never been more easily gotten. They've never been cheaper. They've never been better. They've never been as diverse. And um, they truly are um, um, make things more accessible. So if you want to make something that has sort of been made already, like in terms of a a book, a movie, a song, some of the, the tools to do that are just about free And, um, which means almost anybody in the world can get their hands on it. So, and, and, and all, and many of these things in previous generations were prohibitively expensive and, and really relegated to the, to the elites. But now you can make a book that looks as good as a book that the hottest bestseller author can make, and you can distribute it It costs very, very little to do. So that's huge. And then, and then the new things that we're making that have been as well worn, like, you know, web apps or um, websites and things like that are also, uh, easy, much easier than, than before. And even making hardware things, there's more and more tools. So, so it's, it's, it really is the best time in terms of tools. And then the second bit of that convergence is, is that we're at a moment right now. Where, in terms of what's ahead of us, it's um, it's a very rapidly expanding opening that um, we're on the cusp of all these very transformative uh, technologies and trends that will produce more stuff and opportunities in the next. Fifty years, and, and then, in the past fifty years, as much as that's hard to believe.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our five hundred episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Kevin, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's really my honor and privilege to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, I have known about your work for quite some time, ever since I came across the idea of A Thousand True Fans. And, uh, you know, I I got a chance to hear you on the Tim Ferriss podcast and tear this new book apart. It's underlined, highlighted, dog-eared. But before we get to that, I want to start with a question uh, that I'm very personally curious about. And that is, what is your earliest childhood memory? that planted the seed for all this work that you've ended up doing with your life?
1: I have very, very bad (laughs) memories of my childhood. Almost none. And the earliest um, that might at all be related to anything that I'm doing now is um, I was a very avid model railroad kid. And uh, I was obsessed with building a little world um, in my basement, and working on these um, uh, Lionel trains, and it wasn't so much the trains; it was the the modeling, the the making the you know the houses and the grass and the mountains and all that kind of stuff. And um, I I was sort of very resource bound, um, a little kid, you know, no money, parents didn't have money. There was actually um, finding uh, things, supplies was extremely difficult. This is pre everything at that time. Um, older men who were into it, you know, could um, you know find stuff and go to places and, and make stuff. But as a kid, it was really tough. So I, you know, I had to make things up myself. I got into kind of the making mode, and um, my next project after that in the basement was I made a nature museum. I discovered this book at the library. Called "How to Make a Nature Museum," and I was following its instructions and making exhibits, and um, reading science books and trying to make up my own new exhibits. Um, I had kids in my neighborhood collecting for me, you know, trying to get all the different trees and pressing the leaves, or collecting shells and butterflies and mounting them, etc. And um, my next project after that in the basement was I made a chemistry lab. So I built the benches and got the for my birthday. All I asked for was glassware for years. It was just give me some test tubes, give me some chemicals. Um, I was not I was not making. I was the only chemistry basement lab in the country that was not making bombs. I was actually <laughs> doing experiments, and um, I was following the Golden Book of Chemistry, which is this amazing. Uh, now out of print, but you can find the PDF. Um, online, um, I mean, it was just really—they were you know, they had to be making chlorine gla- uh, gas, you know, hydrogen to, um, to hydrolysis, uh, just you know, making uh, nylon. Um, it was it was really cool, and um, this is the fifties, and so it was a different era, a different attitude about chemistry. Chemicals were kind of cool. I grew up in northern New Jersey, where it was a chemical, factory, uh, chemical industrial complex of the world so in the same way that Silicon Valley is cool to code back then it was cool to be a chemist and um, uh, you know people were very um, I would get chemicals from um, people who worked at Merck and other places and ask them to to give me a jar of you know something poisonous or hard to get and they would do it Um, so those are the kind of early memories I had related to what I'm doing. I, I picked up a camera my family had somewhere in very early middle school and I became interested in photography and that later in high school became something that to me melded my interest in science and tech and art. Um, so I was, I remember trying to take pictures of squirrels from, uh, we lived. I was in the third story of a house. I mean, there was a big tree, and I was trying to take squirrels. And you get these prints back, little brownie prints, and the squirrel would be like the size of a period because they were so far away. And I realized that nature photography, you had to get like really, really close and be really, really patient. I didn't get far with nature photography, but I became much more interested in photography itself. So um, it was – I was a kid that made stuff, a lot of stuff, and um, I read a lot, uh, read a lot of science books that I could, uh, and I read a lot of science fiction, so it was definitely kind of nerdy maker, um, but I was also interested in art, so I did a lot of painting and uh, making art stuff as well, so I was kind of a maker and a do-it-yourselfer. I discovered the Horth catalog when I was in high school. And that was like instant love because it was this, you know, hippie do it yourself thing, make your own house, make your own food, all that kind of stuff. And so I remember in middle school, actually I, I, I was trying to draw out plans about how to make a house that never threw anything away. Everything was recycled. Cause this is, this is like in the sixties way before um, that became fashionable, but you know by the by, by the 60s, people were starting to think about those. And I don't know where I got that because I wasn't reading papers, but I just I thought it was logical to make a completely recycled home that, that you shouldn't throw anything away. Everything should be reused. So um, those are my earliest, uh, maybe may pertinent to, to to what I'm doing now.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because when I when I hear you describe that, what I'm hearing is this just consistent pattern of very sort of obsessive, immersive uh, I- experiences with things that you were interested in and making. And I've seen a pattern like that in just about everybody who I've interviewed who seems to have found some semblance of a calling or some semblance of meaning in their work and life. I'm curious um, what you've seen as patterns uh, in the people that you've been exposed to through, you know, doing things like working at Wired, uh, you know, like co-founding Wired, and like all the people that you've worked. With, what have you seen as patterns in people who find this kind of thing in their life? Um,
1: I don't know enough about their early lives to to know um, what they were like or how how that shaped them, but I do know that. In later in life, you know, basically when I, when I met them, um, that one of the things that um, the kind of people that I sort of hang around and tend to gravitate to um, is their ability to think, you can call it many different things, I might call it laterally, um, think differently. And that's um, Something that I think it's very hard to tell whether they do it naturally or whether they have practiced it. And I think it's probably both. Um, I, I think there is a practice that they've evolved. They may have begun doing it naturally. I suspect so, but then in the case they actually, you know, they have evolved it. And, and, and this ability is to, um, look at the world a little differently. And and that's not just important in for artists, which is if you hang around with a real artist, is it's kind of remarkable because they just see they, they really do see things differently. They look at something and then and there's something about kind of where they're standing or their mind that will see something that you don't see there at all. And if they're of any kind of re- Computer success they may have a somewhat i wouldn't call it consistent view but they they have a style they they, they have kind of a, a, a certain tinted glasses that kind of, kind of colors what they see differently and they see something you can almost see well that well, and you can almost understand or not even not not quite predict but you can kind of they have a, they have a certain perspective or style um But the ones that actually I respect the most are ones that don't even have that. They just, they just constantly are kind of reinventing how they see it. They're seeing it five different ways, not just one different way. And, and that's, that I think kind of requires a little bit of a practice, uh, meaning that they'll see the world differently. And then you say, well, how about, you know, can you see it another way? And they'll see it another way. And so, um, that, that to me is very, very impressive. And, the people that I kind of have the most admiration for today are able to do that. Um, so it's this idea of um, cultivating a different way of looking at the world, or seeing the world, and understanding the world. The kind of questions you ask, um, and the it's always surprising and fun to be around because you never know what they're going to say. Um, you know, I mean, they'll, they'll they'll do something very conventional. They'll have a Different idea about it, and it's like that's interesting. So I, I enjoy being
2: around people like that. Mm. Would it uh, being a photographer teach you about seeing the world differently, and how did that apply to the work that you ended up uh, doing at Wired? So that's yeah. Um, uh,
1: the the kind of one trite way of saying is is that photography forced me out and forced me to look around to 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 see. And I often take my camera with me as a crutch, basically as a, as a device that will force me to look because otherwise I'm not looking really hard. And if I have a camera, then I'm kind of reminded or, or, or propelled to, to kind of look. And, um, so I, I so, so that's one thing was was this was a kind of like an excuse but as a focus to pay attention to things and I would you know I would go way out of my way to look at something or find something or, or inspect something or, or spend many hours on it because I was the, with the excuse with the with the reason that I was trying to photograph it and getting it just right and so that would it would force me to to be patient, to, to pursue, to to um, go all the way, to go far, and so that alone was was worth the was worth the hobby. But there's another angle, which is this, that I think very visually, and I don't. I mean, it's probably assisted by photography. I might I could have done that with painting, but I, I do. Even now, like when I'm writing, I basically trying to describe something I see visually. And so I think visually, I think in terms of pictures and motions and shapes and diagrams and, you know, things like that. So, so for me to understand something, I really kind of had to see it in my mind. And um, um, to, so that's an important aspect that I think was in some ways assisted by thinking very visually and seeing the world through the
2: lens all right well um i want to get into uh you know the ideas uh in this new book the inevitable but i want to ask you uh you know i want to start by asking about one thing that you said in the book you said you know right now in 2016 is the best time to start up there's never been a better time with uh With more opportunity, more openings, lower barriers, higher benefit risk ratios, better returns, greater upside than now. Right now, this minute, this is the moment that folks in the future will look back and say, oh, to have been alive and well back then. Um, That really struck me uh, because, you know, it's an overwhelmingly optimistic view of where we're at. So um, can you tell me one why you believe that and then uh, give us sort of an overview of the forces that are basically inevitable, which I realize is a lengthy question. So
1: um, I truly do believe that this is both the very best time in the history of the universe, as far as we can tell, at least the history of this world, to make something because um, the tools for creation have never been more easily gotten. They've been, never been cheaper. They've never been better. They've never been as diverse and um, they truly are um um make things more accessible so if you want to make something that has sort of been made already like in terms of like a, like a book a movie a song some of the the tools to do that are just about free and um, which means almost anybody in the world can get their hands on it so and and all, and many of these things in previous generations, were prohibitively expensive and and really relegated to the to the elites. But now, you can make a book that looks as good as a book that the hottest bestseller author can make, and you can distribute it. It costs very very little to do. So that's and then and then the new things that we're making that have been as well worn, like you know web apps or um, websites and things like that, are also uh easy much easier than, than before and even making hardware things there's more and more tools. So so it's it's it really is the best time in terms of tools. And then the second bit of that convergence is, is that we're at a moment right now where in terms of what's ahead of us it's um it's a very rapidly expanding opening that um We're on the cusp of all these very transformative uh, technologies and trends that will produce more stuff and opportunities in the next 50 years than than in the past 50 years, as much as that's hard to believe. And so all the amazing things that we've had in the last 50 years, we're going to Ten times as many are going to be coming in the next fifty years, and so there's all these things before us that you can make with these new tools that are now cheap and, and ubiquitous. So that's like um, that's just amazing. Um, so um, so this is this is good news for anybody who wants to make something happen, and um, that you, you uh, should be encouraged that um, uh, all the good ideas are not behind us they're all in front of us that um the the, you know the kind of the the degree of of impact that say motors had on the world or electricity had in the world or printing had in the world are going to pale compared to some of the things that are coming up and um there's uh they're likely to, to to occur in the next 30 uh years and um you are going to be alive at, at that moment and you have access to the tools. And so this is something that sh- people should be rejoicing in. And, and maybe in my little scenario, people in the future will look back with envy that we were, you know, we were here at this time and had all these opportunities and could have done amazing things if we had wanted to.
2: You know, it's interesting to hear you say that. Cause I, for the very first time got to see a, uh, somebody who had been on vacation in Costa Rica and shot aerial footage with a drone camera. And it looked like the opening sequence to a Hollywood film. Right. I was, and he said, yeah, he was like, I buy, you can buy these drone cameras for like a hundred bucks on mm-hmm. Amazon. Right. So yep. I guess the question then is, you know, um, can you give us an overview of what the 12 forces are, you know, for people who, uh, you know, aren't familiar with the book or your work, uh, what those forces are and how they're going to impact our lives.
1: So, I selected kind of 12 umbrella categories, and um, each of these trends, these forces, these uh, leanings, the tilts, um, could be divided up in different ways. And there are, in fact, feeding each other and kind of codependent. They're kind of braided together in an intertwined way so that they are all self-reinforcing and you could untangle them in a different way. So, so these categories are somewhat arbitrary in that sense, but, um, uh, uh, among them are, um, this idea that we're going to increase the amount of, uh, tracking in our lives and capture recording um, and ultimately surveillance, all these, that, that everything we do, anything that can be tracked will be tracked. Anything that can be measured will be measured, and we'll just kind of keep going in that direction. So the same thing can be said about sharing. We're nowhere near peak sharing right now. We're going to be sharing more and more, and I don't mean sharing just like you know, swapping uh, photos. I mean collaborating, cooperating. The, 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 that's what this – technology is doing it's 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 increasing the range and the reach and the speed at which we were able to collaborate and cooperate with each other making things that we couldn't could not be made with uh, because we can now have a hundred thousand people or a million people or a billion people together working at the same time on something collaborating cooperating at scales even planetary scales this is all new in the in the Diversity and the different ways in which we can do sophisticated um, sharing, collaboration. And um, we're also a cognifying, meaning we're making everything smarter. We're making some very inert things more lifelike. We're making dumb things smarter. We're making smart things very smart. Um, so this artificial smartness is permeating our lives and it will have any an impact on life be way beyond what what happened when we electrified and motorized everything. When we, um, added artificial power and energy to all that we did. So we didn't have to rely just on muscle power of animals, ourselves or in our beasts. We, we actually, um, made artificial power, which built skyscrapers and, trains and highways and factories and all this stuff because that we could harness artificial power. And now we're going to artificial or harness artificial intelligence, artificial minds. And that's going to have a second transformation way beyond what happened with the industrial revolution. And, um, so the fact that things are going to be made smarter and smarter every year is inevitable. Um, there are things like, um, increasing the, um, shift from owning things to accessing things from because if you can deliver everything on demand in real time anywhere any anytime in the world that that's in many cases better than owning it so there's a little bit of a of a, a shift away from ownership which by the way is the foundation of capitalism so that's a big that's a big shift and we are also um increasing um And shifting and overturning the way we manage attention. Uh, I I suggest we may even get paid eventually for our attention to watch an ad, to read an email. Um, Right now, advertising has a big outsized role in uh, the Internet world. But um, that could shift if we shifted uh, the economics of attention. so what we're seeing is that there's more and more filtering, more and more curating, more and more that's necessary just because of the sheer number of things that we make. So there's a um, our, our our attention is limited, and all the other things that we're making are growing exponentially. So we so there there has to be a um, a, a new economics around attention. Uh, because we simply will see a, a smaller a smaller percent of every, of everything that's made. Um, so those are the general kinds of, of, of things. As I said, I have roughly twelve of them, uh, including uh, the shift from um, getting answers it, from from answers being a foundational value to becoming a commodity. So if you want an answer, you ask a machine, it will tell you the answer. Answers become cheap and ubiquitous. And I think we shift to valuing questions, uncertainty much more than we do now because, um, a good question in a world of free answers, a good question becomes more valuable. And so we have this shift to questioning. So I, uh, I forget how many I've done, but it goes on from there. Um, You get the general idea that um, these are, I use verbs because there's the other shift is a shift from nouns, from solid things to processes, to services. So this is a shift from, from kind of atomic solids to dematerialized intangibles. And that's the general shift oh, that that's been showing in, in our economy that we you know that we have this intangible idea based bit based um, world of services and processes and everything wants to be seen in with, within the framework of, of of how things become things so this becoming idea hmm. that's the um, and so all the all the trends are are, are verbs or gerunds or present particles they're they're they're, they're general ongoing movements.
2: So what are the implications of all of this for our social relationships and human behavior uh, as we see all of these advances happening? Yeah.
1: um, Well, there's certainly going to be pushback. There's certainly – I mean, humans actually don't don't like change. I mean, we crave it and we crave novelty, but at the same time – we biologically are lazy. I mean, are to, to, to just you know, we're we're a very complex system. Our bodies, our minds are very complex system that 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 are resistant at first on first glance to, to to change. They're kind of built in a certain sense to to not fundamentally change. Though they're pretty plastic. Our minds are fairly plastic, even as adults. Uh, our bodies can can learn, but 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 it requires energy. So. So there is kind of a resistance, a built-in resistance to change that that has to be overcome. So there will be, so a lot of this stuff is going to require new habits. I I call it techno-literacy, where they're just um, we're going to become perpetual newbies, always having to learn new stuff, and that is a little bit of exhausting. That's tiresome. It's like, well, just how many languages do I have? Do I need to know how many interfaces do I need to, uh, you know, to, to master? How many? Uh, you know, menus, do I need to, to, to really, um, become proficient in, and so I can rest. And the thing is, there is no rest. There, there, there's just going to be ongoing. And, and that is a, that is, um, you know, that, that's, that's hard. And, and, um, there is, you know, how many careers do I need to have in my career? How many jobs do I need to have in my career? And the answer is going to be a lot of them. Uh, how many job titles? You're gonna be constantly changing. And so that that for some people that was not the bargain that they grew up with or were taught. And I think um, uh, it'll be tough. I think there's gonna be some tough times for many people. But I firmly believe that people are capable of change and they need they'll need help. I think that's why the government's here. I think the government is there, I'm, I'm a big believer in um, the role in of uh, a communal communal action, which is what we call the government. Socialism—that's what government is. Government is socialistic by by definition, and so um, I think that um, we can, with help, um, move people if they're willing. Um, to this new era where, where, where lifelong learning becomes the the major skill that you want. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter kind of what language you learn, as long as you can learn languages. It doesn't really matter um, what gestures or interfaces you learn, as long as you can learn new ones. And so um, that meta skill, the meta skill of critical thinking, which becomes more important when we move into this era where authorities don't have as much Weight, where you have to assemble your own truth on the screen rather than from the authorities of authors and books. So it's um, uh, so there's there's a set of kind of basic essential meta skills that I think should be taught not just to children but to adults. And I think. Um, you know, or of course, obviously, our educational systems are really not set up for that. But that—that that I think is part of the transformation that that we will continue. It'll take a generation or two to move into, particularly as we kind of go into a post-industrial um, economy, where and society where where um, all the things that people have been talking about for a long time are kind of materializing or dematerializing. I should say. And, I, and and so there is going to be conflict, and, and, and I don't think we know everything. I think probably don't know very much about um, how how humans are. I mean, the, 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 we keep discovering that we're not only discovering what it means to be humans, but we're also at the same time inventing what it means to be human. We're, we're very malleable in the evolutionary sense we're still still forming ourselves and so we are ahead of us we are inventing who we want to be slowly while at the same time we try to uh, uh, adapt to the things that we're making
3: hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at Mintmobile.com slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees, promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than forty gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at Mintmobile.com.
0: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too.
2: So, you brought up two things. Uh, you mentioned both jobs and education, two things that I uh, knew I wanted to ask you about. The first is around jobs, and you know I heard uh, Chris Sacca on this q and a uh, podcast that Tim did with him. Kind of have almost a dystopian view of the future where we're going to have the one percent and everybody else is going to be driving their Ubers and serving them lattes. Uh, and you also mentioned that we're going to have multiple jobs and job titles throughout the course of our lifetime. So, I mean, what is what is that going to look like uh, based on kind of where we're headed and, and the trends that you've kind of seen? Like, you know, I, I know that there are so many jobs even today that didn't exist, you know, even ten years ago. Yeah. Um...
1: I I, I I, think some of what Chris was saying, I think there is an element of truth to that in the sense that um, when we look at the kinds of jobs that can be given to um, the bots with their AI robots in the next 30 years, um, the way I would describe it is any any kind of a role or task that can be defined in terms of uh, efficiency will be a job that we give to the bots, and so um, so so that's a, that's is whether it's a manual label or, or, or knowledge work. If, if 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 it's something where efficiency matters, um, then we give it to the bots, and that leaves us humans with. Um, a pretty wide open field of things where efficiency is not so critical, and uh, if you think about science, which is fundamentally built on one failure after another, that that's terribly, terribly inefficient. And innovation is, you know, by by definition, in, in, inefficient because you're just you're trying stuff that don't that doesn't work. You're trying stuff. You're prototyping. You're spending a lot of time on things that may may be a dead end as you try to figure out the best solution. And so this innovation is entirely an inefficient process. And so, by the way, is human relationships, anything in which humans are working with other humans, this is inherently an inefficient uh, time. This, 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 you don't want productivity in there. And so in a certain sense, the kind of some of the service um, relationships are, are inefficient in that sense. Um, in a certain sense, when you are, having help from somebody you don't want them to be concerned about efficiency you want them to be concerned about effectiveness and so um there is there is one sense in which some of the things that humans will do will be working with other humans and right now we kind of tend to denigrate that but i think over the long term we may come to value that because um we humans cherish um, that kind of interaction, and um, so so things, anything that's efficient or pro, about productivity goes to the bots, and and we're left with all the rest. And and you know, it's like uh, having a nurse sit by your bedside for long periods of time is very inefficient, but very very comforting to us and so i think we will pay for uh, that that's something that we'll begin to pay for uh, and maybe even appreciate more um and so some of that kind of time um is where humans are going to go but it's also i think where we'll come to value even more and so like having a house call having somebody come into your house to fix something is not very efficient but it's I mean, from one st- from one standpoint, but it's something that 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 we like, and so um, I I I think there may be a service component, but uh, that service may actually become to be seen as something that's very valuable.
2: Okay, so outside of the obvious sort of um, you know low level you know serving lattes and driving Ubers places where you could easily replace somebody with a, a bot, what are the not so obvious careers that you know, people are in where they may not be thinking that, Hey, this is replaceable by a robot. Like, what are we, what are we overlooking? Do you think?
1: I mean, there's so many, I mean, I was just, uh, beyond chip chase a friend who, um, does a lot of traveling was, um, did a little workshop on auto driven cars and they were coming up with a whole bunch of different, um, uh, occupations that might relate. And there was one that was sort of cool. he would call them, Dringers, they're called dringers. Uh, they were ring drivers. It was sort of like um, for a while, there'll probably be um, parts of the world or a neighborhood or something that, that aren't easily driven by a robot car. So these are kind of like the when when, when, when boats come into a, a foreign harbor, they often there's pilot boats who actually get on, take over from the captain, and they navigate through the uh, shoals at the harbor. That's the whole job is just to, um, to to go through this really kind of dangerous place, and so there's <laughs> he was imagining these guys called drinkers that that would kind of wait around areas where it was really really tough to navigate with uh, auto-driven cars, and they would drive those cars to these little parts and then they get out, and you had, so you had these kind of uh, dringers, and their job was to kind of do the really really hard driving that. Um, A.I.s had not yet mastered. Um, and that was sort of uh, an interesting um, take on it, which is, again, something I talk about in the book, which is you kind of, the humans working with A.I.s together, they're kind of like partners, and sometimes they do one job, and then your A.I. Do, does another. The kinds of things I think, um, uh, you know, let's just take a, I mean, the auto driving all, all the truck drivers who will probably lose a job i think there's still a huge amount from by the way repairing you know uh, ai repairmen if there are all these ais around then what we know from technology is 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 that they're going to break and so there, there there will be a huge um, you know it's kind of like the it world of people who keep your it going um there there's a huge thing of just people keeping the ais going to keep or keeping the ai trucks going and from the both the mechanical part to to the other parts of it that's th- 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 that's not to be underestimated um and it's you know it's 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 both kind of a manual job but also it's a cerebral job it's it's both it's this combination of um of kind of high tech you know the repair, Guys, but nonetheless, it's it's a very techie job, and um, I think there's going to be a huge need for for that. At the very least, We're, we call them uh, "rannies," so kind of like a robot nanny. People who are really good at keeping these things going, um, and I think that's going to be um, it's kind of like horse wrangler. You know, um, just just keeping these beasts happy is going to be. Um, a pretty big thing. And, and, um, beyond that, I think there's, uh, people tweaking the routes who, who, uh, trying to, um, uh, I'm, I'm just sticking with this idea of auto driven cars. Um, the, the uh, I, 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 think there's, um, uh, just tons and tons of un, unexpected roles that we would, be um, managing what what people do inside of them um, is going to be a huge thing. Um, you know, uh, it, some people think that we're going to do VR, that what we'll do while we're being driven around is, is VR, and that's very, very possible. But there could be, um, you know, I don't know, um, you could have a course, someone could um get in and and teach her. maybe there's parties. I, don't, I. it's hard to imagine. I I I think there's no I'm not really worried at all about the new jobs that will come up. It's I uh, I I think we'll be surprised and I think we'll be surprised by how many new types of careers and roles and tests that are gonna come up. And they'll be as weird to us as a web designer was to a farmer 150 <laughs> years ago. Because you tell them, hey, you're going to lose all your farming jobs. 70% of Americans were farmers. You're all going to get pink slips. And they said, what are you going to do? He said, you're going to be a web designer. You're going to be a mortgage broker. You're going to be a yoga teacher. And they were well, ah, that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense then. it And, and these new jobs won't make any sense either. And, and to me, they're just going to be this... Never-ending surprise of the ways in which people will figure out new desires, new wants, things that we didn't even know we wanted. Um, it's going to be amazing. Hmm.
2: What about education? Uh, like, what kinds of changes can we expect to see? And I mean, what kind of changes do we need to see in order to be prepared for the future? You know, education
1: is probably one of the most conservative. You know, industries, I guess you might say, in, in, in America. And, and the thing about education is that the reform necessary for it has, one, been long, everybody's been aware of this for a long time. And secondly, there have been so much work, so many charter programs, pilot programs. We know exactly how to do this. Um, but doing it, at the scale of this country, um, is just it's a it's not a it's not a knowledge problem. It's not even a technology problem. It's just a it's, it's a matter of political will. It's an agreement on it, um, and so so I don't even I mean it's sort of like um, I mean I just you just point to the different schools in which good stuff are being done and say yeah they they know how to do it how we get that on a wide scale especially particularly to the disadvantaged kids of this country and beyond i don't know but it's it's a problem that we do know how to solve it's a tractable solved problem it's just it's just you know it's a, a matter of executing it and uh that i don't know how that how that happens.
2: All right. So I have one uh, other question for you. One of the things you did throughout the book is you sort of described what a day in your life looks like in the future. Uh, and I was wondering if you might give us a glimpse into that, because I thought that was one of the most fascinating parts of the entire book. Like, What does a day-to-day routine look like 20 years from now?
1: Well, what I didn't do in the book, which I wish I could have which is is beyond me was integrate all the different um little vignettes that i developed for each of those 12 trends these 12 forces um and that would have made a you know i to put them together into kind of a single day um uh, uh-huh. would have been the obvious thing for a better person than i to do, and i and it was just um is just a little bit more difficult. And I haven't done that. So um, I think, uh, I, I think, and let's and, and kind of, take the time horizon of, you know, say 25 years, 20 to 30 years. Um, uh, the, the, the most obvious thing, difference, I think, will be the degree to which AI has permeated our lives, even though uh, most of it won't be visible. It's not visible in the way, say like you're the AIs between Netflix recommendation or the Amazon recommendation engine, which are very sophisticated AIs, are operating. You're not, you're not aware of them being AIs. You just, they're just throwing up suggestions for books. Um, But that's the level of, um, of kind of enterprise corporate boring utility commodity ai that will be operating which is behind the scenes we're not going to see very much of it but it'll have huge impact on modeling our lives there'll be a few um uh, outward facing ais and i I suspect that the that the uh, mode of interaction the interface will be conversational and gestural so the, the little hint of the amazon echo alexia and siri google now where you talk to these things and they kind of like the movie her um where there is um where you're having a conversation with them and um, that conversation will i think deepen over time and become very complex for for many people um uh, and so the the way i, I, I i'm might suggest is that the internet in 25 30 years will be more of a conversation a presence that we experience rather than a place that we go to um there's just it's just this kind of all ongoing presence that we are that is um kind of like a gps for our life so imagine you know how you go down a road with the gps and you you may know somewhat of a route and you make a you, you, you disobey the instructions you kind of cut earlier or you're making a mistake, whatever it is. And the GPS is, you know, very ready with an alternative route. Um, and it's anticipating, you know, your arrival time and all kinds of stuff where you're going to turn next. And so if you, again, depart, detour from that route, it there's no problem. They've got another one. And so, uh, in some ways there'll be a GPS for our life in the sense that, okay, they're, you, you this these AIs are anticipating what you're doing they're getting stuff ready for you for your figuring out you're gonna to go to lunch now um you'll be over here I'll have this ready for you and you decide no I, I'm not gonna do that and then no, no problem I have another plan for you I have uh uh you know this will be ready for you oh, I don't want to do that okay well then no problem There's this is forever patient um anticipation of us in our lives um that I think will be something that, within 30 years, will definitely um, have as an outward-facing AI. So this the sense of a GPS for our life um, will be part of that. That's just AI. We can go on from there. Hmm.
2: Okay. So one other one, uh, I was curious about, I know you, you did a, a nice vignette on the tracking, which I just found fascinating. I thought, wow, that would fundamentally change my eating habits because you mentioned this idea of popping a pill, which would have your vital signs throughout the day. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that and we'll wrap things up.
1: Yeah. Um, so the idea there is, um, if you, um, um, Kind of extrapolate the the degree at which we are self tracking, friends are tracking, companies track, government track. We're, we're kind of really be totally tracked. And by the way, VR is a totally tracked world. All your emotions are captured, and theoretically can be can be tracked and kept and archived and processed. But um, in the health realm, there's there's great uh, advantages to being tracked, and one of the Proposals. One of the you know, one of the scenarios is is, is where um, you have a little pill making machine. They, they sometimes they call it a 3D pill printer or something. But but it's it, it's taking a bunch of different supplements or medicines that you may be prescribed to take, and um, they're in kind of bulk form of some sort. And what the machine does is it generates one capsule a day that has all the different things you're supposed to be taking in the appropriate dosages, but that those dosages are reconfigured and re, re, rebalanced the next day based on the evidence of the drug's effects on you that day. So you're wearing sensors of all different types that can, that can uh, pick up the effects of, of the drugs. And so what you have is every day you have a, 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 a personalized pill that's based on the evidence of the previous day or in the previous weeks or months. It's in cumulative things, but it's it's in real time. So it's, it's constantly doctoring you by um, adjusting what you take based on the evidence of the previous day and, and beyond. And so that's this... That's just one way we have personalized medicine, which is sort of the the hope of, of a lot of this tracking is is that your normal and the way you get sick is unique. It really is. It's your normal's not my normal. You know, all these normal's values change by day, by the season, by the time of our life. And with your own genetics and whatnot, um, what you really you really do want to have very very personalized therapeutics, personalized attention, and the hope of tracking all this stuff, getting a baseline for many years, tracking it in real time, tracking many variables at once allows us to do that, and that's one of the promises of the quantified self is that you could have personalized uh, medical therapy. Yeah.
2: Do you uh, think that uh, we're going towards a place where we're going to be able to prolong human life significantly? And if so, how does that fundamentally change the meaning of what it means to be human at that point?
1: I am agnostic about the uh, life extension possibilities. I, I, I can look at the current trends of increasing life. I don't know whether it plateaus off. I don't know whether it becomes uh exponentially more difficult as we get closer to um or as we get higher um i don't know i don't know enough about it to have an opinion other than i can you know repeat several different sides of the story some people who think that there's a um, absent hope that we're headed towards and others who think that it's open and infinite and then, of course then this the question is right, what speed um My book deals with a 20 20 to 30 year horizon. And so beyond that, it's like, I have no idea. But within a 20 to 30 horizon, I think we will extend life some more years, but I don't think we're going to substantially extend it. But I could be wrong because I don't really know.
2: Well, this has been really, really fascinating. So I have one last question, which is how we finish all our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Unmistakable. Hmm.
2: Well, I think it
1: goes back to a bit what I was saying in the beginning about a um, uh, this ability, this tendency to see things differently i mean i i I think every person on the planet uh past and future past present and future has a slightly different mix of talents just like our faces are are different and um that's um what we use technology for that, that there are part of part, part of what technology is about is to, um, in invent different ways that that mix of talents can be expressed and shared. And so, um, whether that means inventing the musical instruments so that the genius of a boat Mozart or a Beethoven can be expressed and shared, or if inventing the, Technology cinema so that Lucas or Alfred Hitchcock's genius can be expressed and shared. And so just imagine the world, if we had never invented that technology, what a loss to them and to us, that would have been. And so there are um, people born today whose technology have not been invented. And in a certain sense, we have a moral obligation to try and invent as many different types to 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 enable more people to express their genius but i think what unmistakable means is um not just having that technology available but actually being able to find to come to to discover what it is about your mix that's particularly distinctive and for those people who either have and found that venue, that way to express their mix, then we call them unmistakable. And it's in part because they, um, are not, they're not living someone else's movie. They are, they're in their own movie. And, um, they are um, kind of unrespectable in the sense that when that person is doing something, there's really nobody else who can kind of do it like they're doing. And that's just like, they have a face that's different from other people's faces. And so their, 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 their uh, work is characteristic of them just as your faces. So I think it, as most people have an unmistakable face, I think, um, I hope that we can all grow to have unmistakable lives in the same sense, and that it's a little bit harder to do than your face because you have to kind of actually create it. You actually, it's like you're born with this invisible face that you have to sort of find or discover to reveal to others, and that's, that takes most of your life to do. It's your life is sort of about figuring out what your life is. I mean, that's that's the joke. Is it takes takes all your life to figure out what all your life is about, and um, f- some people kind of come earlier to that than others. Um, but in any case, it takes a, it takes a lot of work and dedication to actually try and try and do that, and not to live not to live in other people's movies, but to live in your own movie.
2: Well, uh, this has been just amazing and fascinating and riveting as I, I kind of expected it would be. So, where can people learn more about you?
1: I can be found at my initials, kk.org, um, where I have a page for the book and its translations, The Inevitable 12 Forces Shaping Our Lives, and um, other books that I've done, and other websites and blogs like The Cool Tools. Where every weekday for the past 13 years, I've been recommending a great cool tool. Um, I have uh, True Films, which is the website dedicated to where I review the best documentaries available, and Silver Cord, and I have a new blog called Extrapolations, where I'm gathering with my researcher Camille the all the long-term forecasts for the future. So stuff like that is all there. I'm cake. Kevin to Kelly on Twitter. Um, and my email has been public for 20 years and is buried on my site somewhere. I'm sure you can find it.
2: <laughs> awesome. Well, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share all of this with our listeners. This has been just awesome. Great. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring,